This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 88 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. In this episode, I talk with Cindy Resicott, an award-winning author of Finding Venerable Mother, A Daughter's Spiritual Quest to Thailand, and she is also the creator of the series Casual Buddhism, a weekly YouTube presentation that welcomes people from all walks of life to explore their spiritual practice in a casual conversation with Venerable Damananda Pikuni. She has also written articles and essays featured in Sawadee magazine and in two anthologies, Wandering in Paris, Luminaries and Love in the City of Light, and a Cafe in Space. Prior to retirement, Cindy worked in a nonprofit in nonprofit management positions um, following a career and education in marriage, family, and child counseling. But the focus of today's conversation with Cindy is on Cindy's spiritual life, especially her relationship with Venerable Damananda, the first woman to be ordained in Thailand. And that story, as she tells it in her book, Finding Venerable Mother. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss how Buddhism can be caught, not taught, and be first experiential and then conceptual, which is sort of the other way around that we Westerners typically think of it. But this is Cindy's experience with Buddhism. We talk, of course, about Venerable Damananda and her amazing and inspirational life journey from academic to activist to spiritual leader. We talk about women in Buddhism and the importance of healing the mother-daughter relationship. And we talk about the riches of experiencing multiple spiritual traditions as is modeled by Venerable Damananda. This was both an easy and deep conversation with Cindy. I will definitely have her back on the podcast, which I know you'll agree after enjoying this conversation. And it starts now. Hello, Cindy, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm pleased to be here. 
It, well, I, nobody out there knows. Well, maybe they do. They might have put two and two together since I was on your YouTube uh, podcast with uh, Venerable Damananda. But um, uh, I we've we've connected a bit, so mm-hmm. we're not like total strangers. Most of the time, when I'm interviewing somebody, they're kind of like almost total strangers. But the, this this is very nice to be able to talk to you after we've talked a bit before. So that's great. Um, well, let's dive right into it. Um, although the narrative of your book weaves your personal story, um, you know, I give your bio at the beginning, a little bit about you the beginning and, but I'm interested about, you know, I always love origin stories, you know, how did you get from there to there? Right. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you get from, you know, who you were at the time, which was some years ago at, when you first met Venerable, um, uh, to your connection to Venerable Damananda, you're writing the book. Um, tell us about like your origin story before you went to Thailand and meeting Venerable and then, you know, loop it into how you ended up in Thailand and meeting Venerable. It's all in the book, but I'd be, I think people would love to hear your story. Yeah, I think I've always been a spiritual person. I was reading the other day about um, a book on the presence of silence and the uh, way that we kind of immerse ourselves in perhaps a profound spiritual experience that happens to many of us. Uh, I had one of those experiences when I was about six. I was just sitting outdoors. We happened to live in South Carolina in the fifties in the deep South. And I was looking out at a tree and I went into this deep kind of reverie and connection where I saw, interestingly enough, concentric circles. Um, I have Hmm. no idea what that meant, but it was. You mean you saw them out there in your vision? In my vision. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Was it concentric circles? sort of like the rings of a tree or kind of but but not not like hard lines but um soft in a sort of a sense of entering into that if I can describe it that way well I I hate to detour your origin story because now but now I'm so fascinated um sure. what what did you sense you know since then what have you thought of that what did what does that symbolize to you well, it it and of course I I just kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> I didn't make much of it, but uh, looking back on it, I realized that was my first kind of spiritual experience where I was totally immersed in something larger and greater than myself, an experience of oneness that was so uh, profound that I held on to it. You know, right, I remember right, right. Because Lord knows at seventy two, I don't remember everything. So. Um, <laughs> So um, I think what I'm saying in terms of the origin story is there was always a yearning for that larger spiritual connection, that sense of wholeness, that sense of inner interconnection with the outside world. Um, and so maybe I describe myself as a searcher. I studied psychology. I was a married married marriage family child counselor for uh, maybe 15 years. And then I kind of segued into a different aspect of working for nonprofit organizations. 
But um, one time, this is sort of, this is fun, actually. One time, <laughs> Isn't it fun to talk about your origin story? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was meeting with a, a program officer of a large foundation, which shall go unnamed in San Francisco. But he basically said, oh, you're the Ishmael of fundraisers. And I, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> so I had to go look it up. But he was kind of like a searcher. And, uh, and actually, right now, I'm kind of forgetting what he was, but it, it sort of captured the moment of that search and mm -hmm. wondering. And um, so I've always, I was raised Jewish, but um, for uh, certain childhood experiences that I had, I, I kind of turned away from that experience and, um, but always loved the sense of being at the temple and being in the ritual, hearing the music and that has always been with me. Mm -hmm. So um, when I'm kind of jumping forward here, I, I was married for 33 years to my former husband, who is a deep, a dear friend still. And he worked for a large oil company and was transferred to Thailand in 2005 for what's called an expat position. Right. And... Um, at that point, I had been working for a nonprofit as a fundraiser, but I didn't work in Thailand. They only allow one person in the family to have a work permit. Right. So, and probably I didn't really want to work at that point anyway. I wanted to explore. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to a conference and it was put on actually, and I'm going to forget the name. It's a women's, a women's foundation in San Francisco. And they were, for some reason, they were involved in an uh, a, a association of women and development conference in Bangkok. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, maybe I can find some like-minded women, feminists. Um, I wasn't going with any particular agenda in mind, just to meet people. And they had an afternoon workshop called Faith, Feminism, and the Power of Love. Wow, and I thought uh, that's interesting because yeah, that I sounds great. Love combined with politics or faith. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Um, so I went, and there was nine women from uh, various different countries around the world, and two of them got into kind of a contentious argument—not an argument, but contentious debate—and it kind of ended in a moment of silence, and and venerable just stepped into that. I'd never heard her speak before in a very quiet voice and said, we cannot solve anything in anger. Anger doesn't lead us anywhere. It is much harder to practice loving kindness and compassion. That is the goal of Buddhism. And that's when my body went kind of electric. It just went boing, kind of went on. Uh, I had maybe a real uh, just affinity for what she was saying. I was drawn to her. It moved me. I had struggled with anger in my life. So it was a very profound uh, moment for me to hear that. It rang true. And afterwards, she said, anyone who's interested, please come down to my temple. And that's how I began the, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yet, you know, in your book, um, and you're, you, you're, you actually hinted at it in this this part of your story about your body went electric um, in your book, the way you describe your, that first experience with um, hearing her and, and, and sensing her um, was almost a falling in love. 
Um, and I was going to ask you to tell that story anyway, but you led right into it. Um, and, and, and I was struck by that. Uh, there a lot of people have used that, uh, description when they meet the Dalai Lama. Um, a lot of people have used that description when they meet like a, one of my, um, ex teachers, when I was practicing in Tibetan Buddhism, his eminence, Garchen Rinpoche, he, 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 he's the the he's featured in the movie for the benefit of all beings you should check it out um i always i always plug this my mm -hmm. listeners are probably sick of me telling this story <laughs> and um um but now when you look back at that time which is like mm -hmm. what 18 years ago um uh, yes it is actually yes uh, yeah yeah um how how do you how do you um, put it into words for maybe the doubting Thomas who is listening to us? If you know sure what I mean. I'm not sure what you're. Okay. Well, for me. that falling in love business, you know, oh, um, oh. that the body electric, it's like, uh, how can you have that feeling when you just, there's somebody sight unseen, you don't know them from anybody. Oh, right. They're standing up there. They say a few words, it connects with you but then you connect with them in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. Now there's a whole, to, I'm going to go off the beaten path a little bit, but it'll, you'll know where I'm getting at and it'll help you. I think is um, in, in, in the three, in the pure land sutras, um, you know, I'm a pure land Buddhist, a shin mm -hmm. Buddhist. And in the three pure land sutras, there's a story of how uh, this, this practitioner who named Dharmakara who meets the Buddha. And when he meets the Buddha, he, he, he writes the, in the, in the sutra in the larger Pure Land Sutra in this small part ca called the Tambutsu Gay or Sambutsu Gay. He, there's this, this almost like this love poem that he writes because he is so struck by the radiance of the Buddha's mm -hmm. face. And mm -hmm. at that moment in time, he says, I have to be like you, whatever it is, whatever you got, yes. I got to get that. And yeah. then he makes this vow. He makes multiple vows, but essentially it's a vow that he will establish his own pure land. And, mm -hmm. and when he does, he will, he'll be enlightened and he will establish his own pure land. And if that happens, then therefore all beings will then be enlightened. And mm. if he doesn't get enlightened and establish pure land, um, then, then that would tell the story. So in the gist of it is, is that we're all sort of enlightened by this promise of this Dharmakara who becomes Amida Buddha. So, yes. so his description really mm -hmm. made me, your description of that electric and feeling that feeling on meeting venerable, you didn't even really meet her at the time and, and hearing her really made me think of that Sambutsuge. So tell me 18 years now, gone from that first minute. What, what do you think of that? I think you described it perfectly. <laughs> um, I, I didn't think, want to take words out of your mouth. Yeah, but. no, I, I think, uh, to one who has doubted it, maybe uh, it is maybe difficult to understand. But um, and there's a saying that when the student is ready, that the teacher will follow. Something like that. The teacher appears. Yeah. The teacher appears. Yeah. Um, and and that's the sensed, felt, 
experience I had with Venerable was that an inner knowing on some level, on a deep level, which was more than just a intellectual level mm -hmm. of this woman, she's really important to me. I need to know her. Just like you said, I must, it was like this in, uh, incredible uh, energy, yeah. desire. I mean, definitely desire to know her and right. understand what she, who she is and how did she, that was the thing. It was like, wait a minute. I want some of that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think that's I what some happens. Of that compassion and kindness. <laughs> Yeah, that's what that's what happens. There's uh, a couple of teachers I practices practice with who say who who have taught that um, Buddhism is caught, not taught. Mm. Meaning you catch it, catch mm -hmm. it as if it's a virus or as if it's a falling in love or if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the hidden that's the hidden gem of Buddhism. And it's the, what, the thing I always try to teach when, mm -hmm. with my sangha and my podcast uh, is that um, you can read like a million books about Buddhism. And if it, you keep it in your head and it never gets in here where I'm pointing to my heart, because nobody can see me. Um, right. <laughs> if it never gets in here, then you haven't caught it. Mm-hmm. And isn't it funny that you caught it even before you even were really exploring Buddhism? Definitely, definitely. I had a, I have what I call an experiential understanding of Buddhism way before I had the conceptual understanding of it. That's a cool thing. Yeah, that's a very cool thing. And and I can all, I can understand that. Um, you know, I was aware of Venerable Damananda, but didn't know much about her background at all until you reached out to me and asked mm. me if I'd like to be a guest on your youtube with her um man she is such an awe-inspiring woman in every sense of the word um yes. and then this is just beyond that spiritual thing that we're talking about just just her dedication and her drive um especially her dedication to women mm -hmm. um her mother and we'll you can talk more about this i'm just going to give a brief little blurb about because I, I think a lot of people don't know her unless they know a lot about Thailand and that mm -hmm. sort of Buddhism. And mm -hmm. Theravada Buddhism isn't really that popular in the United States. So it's not, it's not, some of this is not really as well known as like the Dalai Lama, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but her her mother was an ordained nun in a, in a Taiwanese lineage and then Venerable herself before she was under, uh, ordained, studied in her mother's temple, right? Her mother. Yes, she lived there. She yeah. grew up there. Mm -hmm. Her mother, but her mother established the temple, right? Yes, that's right. That's amazing to me. And then, and then, and then Venerable went on to receive a, a bachelor's degree, then a master's degree, I think in, in oh, bachelor's in philosophy, master's in religion. Religious studies. Yeah, yeah religious mm -hmm. studies. And then a PhD in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And then she taught for 27 years in a university at Bangkok. And then, and then, you know, I found out she was a well-known author of many contemporary books uh, and Asian Buddhist issues and so forth. Um, and on top of that, she was married and had three sons and six grandchildren. <laughs> and in 2019, she was recognized as one of the BBC's a hundred most inspiring women. So what I found most inspiring 
about Venerable Damananda is that despite her like uh, global presence, right? Because mm -hmm. she was written about quite a bit when she became the first ordained nun in, in Thailand. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I read about her a lot, even though I wasn't really following her. Um, despite that, she's dedicated to helping people in Thailand, especially women, um, mm -hmm. through through a, a very, uh, I'd say, no-nonsense, concrete way of being. And, um, and also, I love her outlook on sort of reforming the Thai Sangha, like she didn't just go get ordained and just forget about the whole thing. She, she wants to reestablish, you know, the, the or ordination of nuns in Thailand. And, and at the same time speaks out like you in a sort of a political way to, to make sure that people see women as equal, even men, all people, you know, not just other women. So in your book, you quoted the Venerable talking about her inspiration. And I have to read this part because I read this a few times because it, it kind of gave me chills. <clears throat> um, you don't mind, do you? No. Okay. I'm 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 an anxiously anticipating what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll see. Okay. Uh, well, it's about um what inspired her, what her inspiration was. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about how you were there. There was a chant um, and it was, it was for the, about the first fully ordained nun in Buddha's time, which was the uh, Buddha's aunt. Um, Mahabhajapati. Yeah. And, 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 and stepmother um, when her mother, when his mother died in childbirth. Mm -hmm. um, so she she said, and this is from quoting from your book, why do I start with this chant? She leaned forward earnestly. The fact that I am standing here is because of her. She is my spiritual root. I was most impressed with the Buddha's words when he accepted women to be ordained because he said women can be enlightened. They can see it with their own eyes. This was a golden phrase, she pointed out emphatically, the reason he allowed hundreds of women to be ordained. I always say, she said, that the Buddha was the first feminist. He was the first one in world religions to acknowledge that men and women are equal spiritually. No one has the right to stop what was given to us. That is my strength. Yes. Yeah, it gives I, I me chills when you read that because she is so profound in her in that dedication to reestablish the female lineage of uh, Theravada nuns throughout Asia, by the way, not just Thailand. And um, she's dedicated her life to that. Her studies were devoted to that because she her PhD was on the uh, Patamoka, the religious vows of. Uh, that women take when they become monastics. And um, she wrote Thai Women in Buddhism in 1991, which was published by Parallax Press. Um, so she's had a long history and it's very interesting. Uh, I hope it's okay, I diverge into this. You know, she she did not know the word feminist until she came to <laughs> a, a conference in Harvard in 1983. She understood the idea of it, certainly because she was raised in a very, egalitarian family but nobody ever used the word feminist per se and uh it was a it was called a turning point in her life because she basically uh saw 
and heard it was let's see it must have been yeah 1983 the voices of women who had been imprisoned for uh mm-hmm. in their country uh powerful poems of pain and suffering it really moved her and she thought it really affected her emotionally and she thought after that who am i i'm this academic sitting in an ivory tower and what <laughs> am i doing i have this all this knowledge and i'm not doing anything with it so that's when she the seed was planted on a deeper level that she would be, she actually changed from becoming an academic to an activist after that. That's amazing. That is really amazing because you wouldn't, you know, typically in, in the, the background stories of uh, spiritual leaders, you know, whether they be, you know, lamas, priests, roshis, ministers, nuns. Um, you don't, you don't see that activism. You, you know, mm-hmm. we have engaged Buddhism now, but then that was not really the, the case. You know, I mean, right. like, you know, from Titnat Han was an engaged Certainly. Buddhist in the same sort of but he was zen but he had that same sense to him mm-hmm. i i feel Absolutely. you know only from a male perspective and the nuns in his uh plum village sangha have that same sense they're very strong um i had kyra jewel lingo on my podcast yes i had her also on casual buddhism uh-huh. yeah uh, uh-huh. isn't she wonderful um yes. she's yes. very soft-spoken but she's she a very strong woman yeah, very, which actually intimidated me because I have such a strong bleh, voice. And here she's this sweet little soft spoken. Yeah, Kyra Jewel is. Yeah. 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 So, anyway, um, I get that same feeling from them, but it still is very awesome. Yes. To, to, there's some kind of, that dedication is kind of rare, especially that combination, that dedication of the sort of the activism, the academics and and the spirituality is. Yes. And let me let me say one other thing about that. She made a conscious choice after. And I, I think I can say this and she would be fine with it. Uh, she didn't like the anger that was expressed at the conference. She wanted yeah. to invoke change but not through hatred or anger and so she said in order to do that i need and she said a lot of people who are involved in social causes burn out it's it's hard work it's a lot of suffering it is she said in order to be anchored in order to be able to do this kind of change i need to return to my buddhist roots so therefore she will say i am a buddhist first and a feminist second I love it because that is so true. That's that's the protesting and and you know social justice work and even in the engaged Buddhism community, I've met people who are, you know, the sense you get of them is 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 this aggressiveness, this anger, this, you know, maybe it takes a little of that to get started, but you can't keep that going in any way and it's not helpful. So I really respect that about her. By the way, I don't have any judgments about the anger. I think it's valid in many cases. I'm just saying for her personally, she didn't see it necessarily serving her in the way that she could be the most effective in the world. Well, I, I, I agree. I, I don't have the judgment either because 
at my core, I, I anger is my one of my po- of the three poisons. Mine is mm-hmm. anger. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cheers. Yeah. So, um, and, and and it's I think it's one of the hardest to control. But in Tibetan Buddhism, I was taught that, <clears throat> you know, in in Vajrayana Buddhism, where mm. you 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 know where you actually take empowerment so that you can have a guru and that that's supposed, there's a transformation that takes place. Supposedly anger is transformed into wisdom. So each of the three poisons mm-hmm. has some, some, Counterpoint. So some strength to it. Mm-hmm. Um, although, <laughs> although I don't, I'm not going to remind my wife about that because that's probably <laughs> not <laughs> remember it's all about wisdom um but (laughs) so yeah um that's that's funny (laughs) anything another thing that i find extremely interesting about her background and i you did too and you talk about it in the book is her dedication to medicine buddha which is really more of a mahayana thing and that she even even though she says she did not ask him, this is what your book says, even though she did not ask him, she considers His Holiness the Dalai Lama her guru and that she finds Tibetan texts more meaningful than Theravadan texts. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that is just so amazing to me because in, you know, she she did take ordination in that tradition and she is in that culture. I, Let me clarify know. for the listeners, it's Theravada tradition she took ordination that's why i said theravada yeah 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 i'm sorry she took ordination in theravada so the fact that she has all these seemingly deep spiritual imprints outside of theravada even though she's in a theravada culture took ordination Mm -hmm. in a theravada tradition um and and then she has the statue for the medicine buddha in her temple and Mm -hmm. So can you talk more about that? And also you talk about your personal dedication to Medicine Buddha, which I was interested in. So can you kind of riff off of these things? Well, for one thing, Venerable Damananda is kind of unusual in the sense that she went to Canada for her master's degree. And she, she herself is the type of person who kind of looks beyond culture you'll hear her talk about her love. Uh, One of a Christian minister gave her a a picture of Jesus on the cross, which she proudly talks about Wow! because she identifies with, let me see if I can get the story straight. The death of, uh, I I don't want to go into it because I can't remember it exactly, but let me just say that she has a deep love and respect for other traditions. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's just partly who she is. She's open to that. Um, and she's has an intellectual curiosity that exactly that brings her, you know, uh, to that interest. Um, the story about the medicine Buddha, maybe I go into the book. I can't remember is that she seven years before she was ordained, she had a, a kind of a visual, deep visual meditation where she imagined the, the medicine Buddha coming in through her knee of all things and traveling up her bloodstream and, I think she saw this image of the medicine Buddha and she in it's the same medicine Buddha that she had crafted in her, in the medicine Buddha Vihara at her temple, but she actually literally went around searching for images, similar images, and she couldn't find them. 
So it was partly her own, um, I don't want to say, I, get, I don't know if it's imagination or creation, but she had a particular image in mind that she wanted. And that is the image that sits in the Vihara. And I had um, maybe a personal experience with the Medicine Buddha once accidentally before it was actually finished the construction of it. The mm -hmm. curtain was up for some reason and I peeked behind it <laughs> and I saw the Medicine Buddha and I had another one of those kind of aha experiences where, who is this? What is this? I'm drawn to this. And uh, at the time I was having major back problems and she gave me the Medicine Buddha prayer, um, which is a beautiful mantra. Um, and I just incorporated it into my daily meditations. And I found that it was very healing for me. He, he, I call him a he, I don't know if that's correct or not. The Medicine Buddha kind of became a spiritual guide for mm -hmm. me in the mm -hmm. healing process. And I asked Venerable about that once. I had a conversation. I said, well, you know, basically Buddhism doesn't talk about believing in gods outside of ourselves or false, I don't know, maybe I'm getting Judaism mixed up, but false <laughs> no, idols I or get you. Like um, and um, she said, well, in the people's, understanding sometimes it helps to have a visual image of the uh the buddha so that you know it's just kind of like give us a little clue here give yeah. us some help in terms of understanding and so that was kind of how she explained it to me um i don't mean to belittle the the beautiful imagery i have the medicine buddha sitting right i was just me. going to point that out i yeah. see him behind um, you but <laughs> i guess what i'm saying is um it's just an interesting perspective. Well, you know, <clears throat> when I first started studying in the Tibetan tradition, everybody here knows that I studied in the Tibetan tradition for a couple decades prior to becoming more Shin, Shin Zen or Shin practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when I first started studying uh, uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, and we did all these elaborate visualizations, I don't know how much you're familiar with that. Um you know, we use those kind of mantras. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, at a Tibetan Buddhism center, they're chanted in Tibet, and we and and we use those mantras, and we do these elaborate visualizations where you um, you visualize the Buddha, then you become the Buddha, whichever Buddha it is, yeah. um, and then you dissolve the Buddha image so that you're back to your normal self. Oh, that's quite beautiful. Yes, it is quite yeah. beautiful. So, but the the thing is, is that um, it's very confusing to most people, and and people ask the lamas, and I, and I was known to ask all these crazy questions, and and I'm <laughs> very confused most of the time <laughs> about it, and because I'm essentially. I'm a romantic at heart, but I'm also very linear and logical. At the time, I was drawn to Buddhism because it was, I, I call it because I was drawn to it for the mental bling. I like studying things. So, mm -hmm. um, so when we were doing these elaborate visualizations, which I can't visualize my way out of a paper bag, I'm just 
terrible at visualization and I'm married to an artist who, so like oh, that's when hilarious. We, so when we're trying to give each other directions, she draws pictures and I'm like, what? And I tell her go to this street. And she's like, what? <laughs> that's fine. So, so I can't visualize. Um, mm. So here I am in this practice where that's all we do we visualize. And um, so I was so frustrated and I guess it was my own personal angst. And I went to the director at the time and I said, okay, if, if we are supposed to not be attached to external images, if we are supposed to understand there's no self, no discrete thing, everything is empty. Why are we conjuring up images of things and becoming them? And I, and, it, and that's sort of what you're saying. I mean, it's like, but he was like saying, well, it's like the the point of it is, and I guess that's the point. I think a little bit what uh, Venerable Damananda was telling you. The point of it is is to that visual image of Medicine Buddha, whether it be the statue, the 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 tonka behind you whatever um that's no that's no more real or no more not real than me looking at your image on the screen or looking at the tree or it's it's all essentially empty and without a discrete nature hmm. so so the fact that when you visualize it and then you dissolve it you're back to what it's supposed to be. So, um, so I just, I don't know. And I, I was so struck by that, uh, story you did tell about the, the medicine Buddha's knee. It, it, did you say that in the, in the statue that it really, it had a hole in the knee or a, a no, no, oh, that okay. was her visualization where she came to the image of what she wanted her medicine Buddha to look like. Look like. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and she's very much a healer and, and just, people might be interested to know that um, twice a month, or I, I'm sorry, no, I can't remember if it's four times a month, waxing, waning, they follow the, the moon, yeah, phases. The moon, the yeah. moon calendar, and there's celebrations at the temple, uh, according to those dates. So you were going to say that she heals? Oh, she's very much a healer, I think. Uh, and so is her mother. Her mother was a famous for healing. Um an example is, you know, she'll go to, and I think you alluded to this in the beginning, actually, when you were describing her, she'll go to a member, a woman's house in the community who maybe is dying of cancer, and she'll hold her in her arms, and they'll maybe chant the Medicine Buddha prayer. Um, she just has that energy. And, you know, how is that? I think you alluded to this in your book, but I can't remember the exact you know, story or words, but um, how is that seen in this Theravadan culture? You know, it's, 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 despite her deep respect for all the different traditions, mm -hmm. that culture doesn't necessarily have that, you know? The, the, the Tibetan, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not exactly sure about that. She says, I think she says, you know, in, in her way that people probably think it's weird, but <laughs> in a sense, she doesn't care because, um, because that's who she is. I mean, she, if she were to take seriously all the criticism that she's gotten, you know, it would, it would be very She'd hard. Stop. Yeah. She'd stop. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and she comes from a healing tradition of uh, venerable Vormai was said to have uh healing eyes uh healing vision is that her mother 
That's her mother, yeah. right? Yeah. Venerable Burma, I'm sorry. Uh, and she people would literally come to the temple to have her kind of. I once asked Venerable if she thought she was psychic. She said, no, it was different. It was from a higher meditation state, but she kind of could intuit. I'll, I'll just go ahead and give you an example if you want to use it. Fine, not that's fine. But she, a woman came to the temple, said somebody was creating havoc, there were teacup falling on the, off the table and breaking, and other odd things were happening. And Venerable Voramai looked into the woman and said, Oh, uh, you had an abortion. And she said, No, I never had an abortion. And um, apparently, unbeknownst to her, the uh, her husband, who was an um, a gynecologist had removed uh, probably something like an IUD or some, or some kind of inner uterine device and had not realized it at the time there was a tiny fetus. Oh. And um, so she didn't even know. She didn't know. And and according to Venerable Vormai, this being was crying. How come you promised me to be my mother in this life? I mean, this is how the story goes. Interesting. Very and interesting. You, you reneged on your promise. So Venerable Vormai said, when you sit down to dinner, invite the unborn child <laughs> to eat with you. Get Make merit right. for the child. Anyway, and it, as the story goes, and I, you know, I, I tend to kind of, if you're there in Thailand and you feel all the energy, you tend to kind of go with it. Well, is that the, you know, it became it became uh, the situation calmed down. But I have to say that, like I said, I'm a kind of a linear logical person, but at, at the same time, I have a deep respect for all the traditions that I've been involved in, which changes my logical nature and softens mm -hmm, it a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to, or you couldn't stay with it. Um, right. So I, I much. Like I could never, I don't ever, would never classify myself as a, classify myself as a secular Buddhist, which is kind of the rage in the United States mm -hmm. um, with the, with the mindfulness culture, you know, yes. the, the, yes. the, so it becomes what they, 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 I think misappropriate Buddhism for productivity, if you know what I mean. They, they, they use it as a self-development tool. I think I talked about this with venerable when we mm -hmm. were i was on with your youtube expressing mm -hmm. my my kind of dismay about all that and sure. she, and and her answer was let them do what they want to do absolutely i remember that <laughs> pointedly she basically said each to her own oh, yeah I, I i i felt a little slapped upside the head i love i, I love that's the teaching, though. Yeah, I love to meet with teachers who smack yeah. me, man, like that. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that you're really in 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 front of a teacher when they don't they don't care about correcting you. <laughs> so, and yeah, I remember yeah. I burst out laughing when she said that because it was just so awesome. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, you know, and so I'm pretty much an agnostic about everything. I I love the the the, the teaching stories. I love the um, the symbolism. I love all of it. I, I love literature, so I love it as literature, but I also have had many experiences in my life through my Buddhist practice where I can't say that I'm going to say that I doubt a lot of things anymore because I've seen too many things that I can't really say that can't be, right? Mm -hmm. That can't be. Mm -hmm. Um 
Now, in your book, too, um, sort of back to you, Cindy, yes. <laughs> in your book, because this it is an interesting book, and then it bounces around between talking about Veneral Dominanda and your life. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like being a fly on the wall, if you will, which I always love Absolutely. stuff like that. I always love that. Um, so I thought that was actually kind of brilliant in the way in which you structured that book, actually. So you could have done it a lot more dry, mm-hmm. you know, if you were just talking about your experience there, but it was mm-hmm. so much, there was so much about you and you reveal a lot about yourself in the book, about your past, about your emotional challenges with your mother and your husband and coming into your own strength and your spiritual journey and connecting to your family's Jewish heritage. You write mm-hmm. wonderfully and truthfully, Thank which you. I respect. Um, and I think many people will feel a connection to the real life truths that you reveal. You know, it's I love when I read people writing and I, I and I sense that it's in your face writing. They don't it's just like, hey, this is this is who I am, this is who I, where I was at the time. Um, right. so I love that. Um, but the title of your book, and I really want to get into this now because I think it's it's kind of there's a there's, it's the deeper theme here, and I may be putting it on this, but you you can tell me. The title of your book and the anecdotes you share reveals a deeper connection to all of our connections and challenges with the mother, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You even wrote that Dominanda, and I'm quoting this, said that in order to heal ourselves, we must heal the mother-daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. So are you comfortable sharing a little more about that in your life, how Dominanda helped and how maybe you could even riff off on that and explain how you might see that in other people's lives? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm totally comfortable with that. I think that um, if you look at uh, what moved me so much in meeting Venerable Dominanda is that our mothers were kind of similar. Venerable Voramai, she was amazing. She was uh, rode to uh, a bicycle to Singapore with the Boy Scouts when she was 29. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> she did jujitsu. She was a journalist. I, she she was kind of the original go-getter. <laughs> and my mother uh, was uh, entered law school in 1934. Whoa. And was at the top of her class and was, a, is, I'm sorry, I should say was, I, I, for some reason I found myself talking to her last night. So sometimes she gets present, but um, she was. Well, you should explain that she's passed. She's passed. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me not confuse people. Yeah. She died in 2005. Um, she uh, was a lawyerly type, very practical very controlling, very domineering. She, you know, her life made sense to her. God bless her. She had rules. She had a high moral sense, uh, moral values. And um, the only problem was I kind of emerged this little being that kind of needed warmth, affection. Uh, I was very (laughs) sensitive. I had a high emotional sensitivity and it was just like, what? You know, we just (laughs) kind of didn't. We were different beings. Yeah. Nevertheless, she is my mother, was my mother, and um, I struggled. So I struggled. I was very lonely as a child and um, kind of anxious, um, 
took a lot of the criticism. Her she had a very judgmental kind of side. I suppose I should give an example. Um, I don't know. I think anybody could sort of relate. You get I it. Mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She had a sort of a punishing sense of sending me to my room and blah blah blah. <laughs> but um, so when I met Venerable, it was like, first of all. Let me say I totally loved and respected my mother because of her strong feminist right. stance. And she was really bright too. Um, but there was no softness to her. I hear and you. And when I met Venerable, it was like, wait a minute. You sense, I, I describe it like a piece of leather. Leather is very strong, but it's very supple. Leather is very soft. Soft, right. Yeah. And Venerable has that... Um, strength of determination and Joan Halifax describes her as a strong back and a soft front. Yeah. That's a pretty typical expression. A lot of people use that in Buddhism. Yeah. Strong and back that and... gives people a little bit of a visual yeah. idea. Um, and, and maybe early on when we first met, I just started crying because I was so tight. I do remember it was probably the first time we were walking in the back garden. I just started crying. And she said, you know, it's okay, uh, weep if you need to. People often weep when they first come here because you're allowing that soft you to come out and et cetera. Um, and then and, and essentially, if you want to look at it in kind of psychological terms, I sort of transferred onto Venerable. <laughs> she sort of became yeah. my mother. <laughs> yeah. And uh, became very uh, important to me as a strong mother figure and in the context of the narrative in the book sort of helped me come to terms with my own woundedness as a child and acceptance of uh, myself and my mother in terms of understanding uh, that was painful that I didn't get what I wanted, but uh, there's a, let me say the quality of true forgiveness. There's a, there's a real depth of coming to grips with the painful reality of that hurt. And there's also a release and this phenomenal release and letting go of, Oh, uh, acceptance. Yeah. She yeah. helped me through that. You know, um, you, you, when you write about it in the book, you, you really get that strong, you, even without like, discrete words you you pick up the feeling of your sort of transference your sort of attachment to yes dominanda yes. i you know probably a dirty word in buddhism to say attachment but you, you yeah seem, i definitely <laughs> had one <laughs> you seem very attached to dominanda yes. you yes. Know, yes. kind of like you know seeing where she is at every any minute and seeing if you could talk to her and feeling uncomfortable around her and all that stuff it was it was very kind of endearing in, in that way um but i have to say and i think those people who follow me on this podcast are going to be well i i, I talked about it a little bit in introducing myself and when i shared your youtube is um i actually felt that with her when I had the interview oh, with her, interesting. Uh -huh. it, uh, it it was pretty strong too for mm -hmm. me, and and it, it was and it was on a Zoom call, so it's like, whoa, how did you know? There was there she just emits so much 
soft warmth and it is sort of motherly Mm -hmm. yet at the same time you know you're in the presence of this strong powerful presence of a teacher and Mm -hmm. you know you feel both of those things like Mm -hmm. when she slapped me upside the head just do what let them do what they want to do in a very quiet way (laughs) in a very quiet way no it was very sweet but I mean I I know what she was saying to me. Um, right, so, right. so um, um, but I really was very touched and 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 felt kind of like almost like that same kind of attachment for a couple of days afterwards. Like mm-hmm. I, I kept reading all about her and I was like, it's kind of mm-hmm. weird, actually. I have to say that. it was just kind of weird. So mm-hmm. um so I would share that too, that that. So I, I I imagine I would feel much the same way if I had met her in person. So that mm-hmm. was kind of interesting experience. Yes. Um, you know, you were ordained mm-hmm. and received an ordination name, had your head shaved, and all that in the typical style of the temporary wow. ordination in the Thai lineage, which people who follow me may not be familiar with this at all because many of them I think are Mahayana Buddhists and Mm -hmm. have no understanding of that tradition and how that works. And maybe could you explain that a little bit as as far as in contrast to those of us who took refuge, you know, or were ordained in in a Mahayana tradition? Uh, are you talking about taking the bodhisattva precepts? Not or? just uh, in in Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, those of us who are there's a couple. You in many of the schools, you take refuge, um, mm-hmm. which is where you give you become an official Buddhist. You know, oh, I see. you okay, you take yeah. refuge in the Buddha Dharma and Sangha. It's right. called ordination. Um, I see. And you, you, a piece of your hair is cut symbolically, yes. and you're given a, a dharma name. Okay, um, and, and but at the same time, in many of these traditions, you can also take bodhisattva vows, or you can take the bodhisattva vows later. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my case, I took both of them. So, but the refuge vows are what I think most of my audience would be in, but would be I, familiar I think I understand. with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just I took a second temporary ordination this past December. So it's very recent in my mind and I write about it actually. Um it was a very interesting experience the second time. The first time I was kind of oblivious. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was kind of being yanked back and forth and right. Quite an entertaining experience if I need <laughs> Second time was much more serious. Uh I was much more attentive to what was going on. And to to explain it, um, temporary simply means we go in, I think we go in December 2nd, we start preparing for the ordination on December 5th, we practice for nine days, we take the 10 precepts, we take the robe, uh, we wear the robe, we shave our heads, and we practice in a monastic tradition for 10 days, a very brief period, then we take undergo a ceremony to disrobe and go back into our lay, uh, uh, our regular clothing. So the idea, I just want to say a little bit about temporary ordination, I think, behind Venerable's idea is that 
you know, because there was never a history of female ordination in Thailand. Uh, she was literally the first woman to be ordained as a bhikkhuni. So um, she kind of wanted women to understand this is what the female monastic experience is like. Understanding that not everyone would choose to be a monastic. Right. What if we give this temporary experience, I call it like a, uh, you know, an extension class in monasticism is the way I look at it. Um, <laughs> A cert certification class. A certification, <laughs> right? It's 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 a real, profound and life changing experience. Not to make fun of it by calling it an anyway. No, I get. But that. Um, but uh, but I I also think it's kind of funny. Um, so yes, um, what I came away with this last time was. Um, I had a horrible time with the robe, which I didn't have before. And the the robe is quite complicated. It, I, I kind of revere it and I'm kind of terrified of it because it's got, it's a big rectangular piece made out of right. patches. And there's literally a top and the bottom. And for the life of me, I couldn't tell which was the top and which was the bottom. <laughs> so I constantly had to nudge somebody and say, how do I do this? Where <laughs> do I start? Because well, I knew how to fold it once I got started. And so that was a dependency and an interconnection on people that being a Westerner and maybe at my age, kind of proud or whatever, I didn't want to admit I really needed to depend on others. And it kind of made me really anxious. It's like, is somebody going to be there? We got to change our robes at a certain point in the ceremony. How am I going to get it on? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so... <laughs> So, you know, at the end, I, it's funny, I was just talking to a friend about this last night. Um, basically, I think what Venerable said was those people who don't really learn how to depend on others suffer. And that was kind yeah. of my learning from this is that, yeah, you, you're not going to do this alone, honey. Yeah. You yeah. need other people. And that was my takeaway from this, among many other things. Um, just, but just getting through the process of the ceremony, we, we really helped each other. The Sangha, the community was instrumental. Let me ask you, uh, and in, in setting up this contrast between taking refuge in the Mahayana tradition, when you mm -hmm. take refuge, you take, you take certain vows, some, some, some of the schools, they're all a little different. Mm -hmm. uh, you 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 take the precepts some you don't you, you know um it it all depends but when you take the precepts and get a dharma name yes. in a temporary and then you disrobe and you go home do you are you still considered to be under the precepts and used and maybe use the dharma name if you know what i mean excellent question um no, you're not still under the precepts. That's what I thought. Five, yeah. The last five are, well, uh, not eating after lunch. Um, there's several that just don't apply to lay life. Um, no, uh, that's, that's the idea. You, you resume lay life, hopefully with the immersion and the depth uh, and the intensity of having experienced that depth connection to the Buddhist tradition. So that I've always felt I come out transformed from those experiences. Mm -hmm. 
I don't carry on with the traditions. I don't continue to wear the robe or uh, observe the precepts in that way, in that formal way. No. So um, another question. <laughs> and feel free to say I don't want to answer it if you want. I'm 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 getting I'm going to be a little pushier on this one. <laughs> Is that since I so strongly identify with the Mahayana tradition and mm -hmm. taking refuge and taking bodhisattva vows and those are lifelong in my mind. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and when I took, I took multiple names because I was ordained multiple times, but then my last name Shinyo is the name I was given when I became a sensei or a lay minister. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. so of course I take, I keep that one. So I, but I have a string of Tibetan names as well, but, um, <laughs> but I, but I have always kept the priest. I, I, not the precepts. I have kept my uh, refuge vows uh -huh. to my heart and my bodhisattva vows to my heart. I, those mm -hmm. seem, I know those are lifelong. Mm -hmm. So my question to you would be, since that was temporary, now with you're back home, you're in the United States. Do you think about joining another Sangha, taking vow, you know, taking refuge vows or, to, or do you, do, do you ever consider that or, or because you really strongly consider venerable your teacher that that would not even be in your mind or you hear what I'm saying? Well, certainly. Um, first of all, my ordained name is Damanandia and I take pride in that name. Um, and I want to say that she is always with me. Now I may not observe her per se or the take on the name, but the experience of having lived through that monastic experience is with me. I, I'm sorry, I can't say how. It's not a linear thing, but it's No, in me. I get you. Yeah. And um, when I go to, we have a spiritual center called Spirit Rock here in Northern California. When I go uh -huh. there, you're allowed in a silent retreat to take the precepts. So I can, I can, um, uh, I don't, I don't think I've quite, taking them on in the same way you have. But I think what's interesting when you look at, a, I had a program we did at, at Inside LA with Venerable and Trudy Goodman, and it was on meditation and and an Asian a, a, a Thai, Thai woman came on and said, uh, we have mindfulness here, but we don't have sila as much. Yeah, sila. Your country, the precepts are the precepts are the first step to, right. to meditation practice. And I just want to mention that that um I think you're bringing up a really good point. I'm not quite sure how to answer it. Um, <laughs> I think we need maybe more of what you're saying. Yeah. To remind us of the moral uh direction, if I can call the precepts moral that way. Um to guide us. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite answering your question, but I like what you're saying. Well, it's okay. You know, it's okay. I, I, I've always considered the precepts guidelines and not rules, not mm -hmm. like the 10 mm -hmm. commandments or something, right, you know right. what I mean? Because I think, you know, who's, who's to say, I can't say what the Buddha had in mind or anything. But um, to me, <laughs> the spirit of the precepts were never about the rules. If you were a lay person, they were never 
about those monastic rules. Those things, the even in the Mahayana tradition, we have the ten precepts, not not um, not uh, monastic precepts, which you were talking about, not eating after a certain. The ten precepts in Mahayana tradition have nothing to do with that, really. You know, they mm -hmm. don't. You know, so. Um, but but they are guidelines, you know, mm -hmm. they are guidelines. I feel as a lay, I'm a lay Buddhist minister, and therefore mm -hmm. I I think of my audience as lay people, mm -hmm. okay? And therefore, and, and lay people who need that Buddhist way of being mm -hmm. to help their lives. Mm -hmm. But to get that Buddhist way of being they do need to align to something yes some kind of yes. something some and, kind of guideline yeah yeah and mm -hmm. to me it's much the 10 precepts don't do it for me i think they're great guidelines mm -hmm. but i think the four noble truths and the eightfold path is pretty much all you need as a lay buddhist to keep yourself in line which is why i my first book was structured around that um mm -hmm. because in tibetan buddhism and in zen buddhism and shin buddhism that's still the main thing mm -hmm. it's all I, throughout i would say the precepts definitely have their part in my experience in terms of guiding me to what is wholesome behavior and um, what I consider wholesome, and it, it is helpful for me to have those as a as a guideline. Yeah, that's why I call them guidelines. But a lot yeah. of people come to Buddhism like from from nowhere. You know, they don't, and then they 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 think that they get all freaky outy about <laughs> taking <laughs> to, to ten, you know, and then the precepts, and then you know, it's like it's like rules from above, you know, mm -hmm. like Moses mm -hmm. delivered it on a tablet, and you got to do this thing, or you're gonna, you know, burst into flames or something, you know. Right. It's like, it's like it's, and I think because of our Christian culture, that's sort of the conceptualization that's of what the ten precepts are, and I'm always saying, you know, chill. <laughs> Right. you that use them as guidelines like a mm -hmm. like a like a chalk mark or something right. you know right. yeah it's like right you yeah. know what i mean yeah but, the guideline fits for me yeah. but for the four noble truths in the eightfold path to me are you better keep that in concrete <laughs> that certainly to, keep it in mind yes. yeah um, that's to me everything and so when mm -hmm. i talk with people you know, I'm constantly, well, you know, like, like the second, like the second of the eightfold path or like that. And I'll, I will constantly refer to that because I think the more people are familiar with that, the more that actually changes their way of seeing the world. And Buddhism is nothing. And Venerable Dhammananda agreed with me on this. Mm -hmm. Buddhism is nothing unless it's in your every day. Yes. And absolutely. too many people take absolutely. it up as a scholarly practice and it's not in there every day. Yes. And by the way, I think that's what she would argue is in the feminine tradition, the feminine lineage, where she would say the male monks often teach from the texts in Thailand anyway, uh, and the theory. But when she speaks, she teaches on the basis of her experience. Exactly. It's just, and my teacher said, Buddhism is dead if it's only in books. 
Mm. It only becomes alive if you try it on, try it out. Mm -hmm. The Buddha said that. The Buddha mm -hmm. said, you know, try it out. The lived experience. Yeah. If you if it doesn't work for you, forget it. But if mm -hmm. it works, take it up. So yeah, we we went crazy on this one. We kept going and going and going. But um yeah. you'll have to think, yeah. I'm not we're not we're not gonna edit this. I love it. This is what I like about excellent my excellent. conversations because I don't plot them. <laughs> I let them go right. organically. I think that's important. Um now to your weekly YouTube series. You yes. know, casual Buddhism, where you invite people to ask questions of Venerable Dhammananda. You mm -hmm. asked me to be a guest, like I said before, and I appeared in late January, and it it, it really was a profound moment for me. Um, mm -hmm. But I've tried to catch all your YouTube podcasts, and I'm not caught up yet because <laughs> there's quite well, a few. <laughs> there's quite a few, yeah. There's quite a few, but like I told you, I I got I got all attached to Venerable Dominana, and I couldn't get enough of her. She is quite amazing. Yes, <laughs> I mean, just that smile. It's just like me. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just wonderful, totally wonderful. Um, but I haven't seen them all. But right. it's they're all it's wonderful to see the interactions, and I really want to encourage the listeners to to watch it because. What I like about it is there's this presence of Venerable Dhammananda, and she changes with the interaction with her mm -hmm. guests. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the Buddha, you know, that she he delivered his message to the audience based on what they need. She does the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, I didn't see her doing too many a slapping upside the heads like she did with me, but hey, so <laughs> maybe I needed it more. But well, what she, I, she does speak directly to people in a very kind way. Yeah, she does. She, she does. does. Yeah. But I love how she um and I and I encourage people to watch it because one of the things that I catch from her is that she'll take somebody's question and she goes way beyond what seems to be the thread of it. She goes deep. Yes. Right. Right. And um how did you conceive of this idea? Um, how did you propose it to Venerable? And how does she feel about it now? Right. Well, first of all, thank you for um, mentioning it. That's great. Um, I also welcome people to uh, approach me if they'd like to meet Venerable. And That's they can, great. Yeah, they can do that just through my website, cindyrossico.com. Well, I'll put all that stuff in my show notes. Oh, so okay. They thank have you. plenty of places to get there. I just put that little plug in. That's um, good. No problem. Okay. And how we came about it, it was the pandemic. Uh -huh. uh, I uh, just come back from the temple, I think, in uh, January. In fact, I literally had to come home. The State Department ordered me to come home in February 19th of 2020, I think. Oh, of remember. course. Yeah. Um, And I had just been uh, separated, divorced. Oh, I was very lonely. The pandemic, living alone, sort of accentuated the loneliness and of the course. disconnection. And I can say, I, well, first of all, always in the back of my mind is I would love for other people to hear Venerable Dhammananda speak. So that's kind of in the back of my mind. But also for me personally, I just needed psychological or spiritual support. I got it. <laughs> and we talked and she, she actually came up with the idea of, I think she called it casual. She called it something else, but it had the word casual in it. 
And she said, I just want to be able to come on, speak to people. Don't pre-rehearse it. Make it spontaneous. Let me, it's make it short. Let's just let people have a chance to talk about whatever's on their minds in a spiritual way. That's wonderful. She wanted to do it. She wanted to do it. She loves it. She <laughs> really enjoys Westerners because you have to understand within a Thai context, people revere her. They look up to her. They're very careful about their behavior around her. Yeah. I am as a Westerner speak probably much more freely than the, the average Thai woman. Yeah, of course. Um, and she just, first of all, she's a born teacher. She lights up. Yeah. She's got it in her heart and her soul to teach. She's very charismatic. And when she gets into this conversation, she just really enjoys it. So you, it's something you, that she you can uh, tell. Yeah, yeah, she really she feeds off of it. Yeah, you can tell. And I, I did ask her at one point because she said, I think she said last May, she made an announcement that she was pulling back from some of her because she's 78 now. She was pulling back from some of her activities. And I said, you know, is this OK? She said, oh, yeah, I I really like doing this. So it energizes her. probably. It her. Yeah, it keeps her alive. Right. <laughs> um, well, I think that's a great place to end because we've plugged you. Plug, <laughs> plug your book. You. Plug. We definitely plug Venerable. Actually, there was a there was something in your book because you put a footnote in it about that she even had a TED talk. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's Doisy Tap is what it's called. Or I'm going to find that and I'm going to put it in the show notes because uh, I haven't I, I haven't seen it, but I I have it written down to remind myself to do it. So yeah, and one exciting thing is um, she's working with a woman from France. Actually, they're going. They have a website, tybacunis.com, but wow. they're, going to, they're going to have a new website which is named after the temple Sangdama Kalyani. Uh, I don't know the actual name of it, but I just want to alert people to that. It's going to be kind of a high, uh, more informative, uh, probably. I, I'm excited about it. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's coming up. Well, that's good. Um, that, that's you, you, Maybe we'll have you back on when that happens. And so we can talk about Great. that a little bit. Yeah. I, I The only last thing I want to say is, you know, if you're ever interested in going, it's quite an experience. And I would <laughs> encourage you to, if you have that urge. <laughs> well, I, I have the urge. Um, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um okay. <laughs> Um, I, um, I, I have an autoimmune condition, I, uh, oh. immune deficiency. So I, I, I don't even, you know, with the pandemic, it's, you know, I was never much of a traveler to begin with, but mm -hmm. this makes it even worse. I don't, I have to be very careful. You know, I've been sort of a, my, my partner and I have sort of been prisoners in our house, sure. except when we go out and when we go out, we're in mass. It's kind of, it's not been great. Um, but right. yeah, you know life is what life is right <laughs> so um well, thank you thank you there's so much. so much more we could talk about um right. is there any other thing you want to mention that i didn't talk about before you cl we close oh uh, no i would just like to say that um yeah there's one other thing i i saw the memoir i saw my finding venerable mother as a memoir it's kind of part one of a sequel and part two is the second book i'm working on which is more about Venerable Damananda's life in particular. 
uh-huh. her life to a path to ordination and her teachings. So I'm just kind of excited about that. I, I almost feel like part one, the Buddha said, be beneficial to yourself and be beneficial to others. And part one of my journey was I kind of had to figure out who I was and what I was doing in relationship to her. And the second part is going to be for others, the her that's, story. That's perfect. Well, we'll definitely have you on when that comes Thank out. you. Thank you so much. This has been fabulous. I really appreciate the opportunity. Sorry. Yeah. And you just you just have to uh, promise to invite me to if you will take second second uh, go rounds maybe i oh, can absolutely. talk to venerable again <laughs> absolutely we'll have you back it's wonderful to talk with you today cindy thank you so much for being thank on this you. show be well that's it for this episode you can find more about cindy and venerable damananda in the show notes next up some announcements, of course. As always, a reminder that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported everyday sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The sangha has recently begun a new study of the book Heart of the Shin Buddhist Path, A Life of Awakening by Takamoro Shigaraki. Our meetings consist of a service first, including a short meditation period, traditional vow recitations and other invocations like refuge, bodhisattva vows, etc., and some chanting. The service introduces more ritual and liturgy into the structure of our meeting, much like you would find at a non-virtual Buddhist temple, church, or sangha. The service includes a Dharma talk by one of the practice leaders or myself, Wendy Shinyo-sensei, and many times a special Dharma glimpse by a volunteer Sangha member. After the service, we open it up to discussion of the current book study or of anything that was inspired by one of the Dharma talks. Consider joining the Sangha at this time as we start a new study and be a part of uh, the new study practice, and a warm and welcoming Sangha community. You can learn more about the Sangha and get a feel for it by viewing the latest bonus YouTube podcast where me, Bradley Janayo-sensei, and Terry Hoskin, both of those two are our practice leaders, talk about what the Sangha and what everyday Buddhism is all about. You can also support this podcast and the other activities of Everyday Buddhism by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to all members-only podcasts, an education series, and a private group on a non-Facebook platform. Now, if you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any social media platforms we post in, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community, or the Everyday Sangha. Just go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on either the tab that says Join Members Community or Join Everyday Sangha. I thank all of you who contribute. This podcast and the community and the Sangha depend on your donations to continue to exist. 
I do not seek podcast sponsors and do not ask for financial commitments through paid podcast memberships. So my work and the cost of the infrastructure needed to support what I do is entirely self-funded except for your donations. Please consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or on my website's website's donate tab. You can even buy me a coffee on the coffee cup link on the website. You can find all these links in the show notes as well. And thanks too to all of you who write in with comments and questions. I do read everything. I can't always respond like I say, but I would love to respond to everyone. Another way you can help is to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It's important to share the podcast with others if you find it helpful in your life. And if you could, take a minute to comment so people will know why you love Everyday Buddhism. That's all for the announcement. So until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. <laughs>